All right, well, um, certainly uh, the fact that we are, my wife and I are getting ready to go on a vacation means for us something of an anniversary of a year gone by. Uh, every year we uh, go down to uh, Southern California. Um, I attend the Shepherds Conference there, and then my wife and I kind of take our little vacation together, and uh, that's always a, a great time for me personally to have uh, time to reflect and just think about all of God's grace and our our church and our lives and my life, and uh, I just want to thank all of you for your faithfulness uh, to this church. I want to thank all of you for attending the church, for coming here and listening uh, to the Word of God being preached. I tell you, uh, it, I don't know that much time goes by that I have to pinch myself uh, to see if I'm dreaming because it is really, really an amazing thing for me to be a preacher of God's Word. Uh, somebody before service uh, reminded me of my testimony, asked me what, uh, uh, that they want to know my testimony and how I got saved. And uh, uh, let me just tell you that um, I am a trophy of God's grace. I mean, um, uh, I stand here uh, today just uh, as a trophy of, of God taking uh, something that was utterly ugly and, and, and worthless and, and truly, truly deserving of all of those passages on the wrath of God and hell that Pastor Chris read to us, who was more than deserving of those passages and that reality ultimately, and was running headlong into that very destiny. Uh, when God, by His grace, uh, the way that I like to think about it is God reached down into the lowest level of the pit and found the slimiest, worthless thing He could find, and, and, and here I am. So um, uh, I am truly amazed and reminded by the grace of God uh, in my life in another year of being able to preach the mysteries of God in, this, in the Word of God is just um, a reason for me to celebrate and to, um, and to reflect on that. And uh, I'm just grateful to Heritage Grace for giving me uh, the opportunity to serve uh, in the capacity of a preaching pastor. That is, my, you know, when I was uh, a young Christian, 19 years old, I was about six months old in the Lord. And I remember the first time I was able to interpret a verse of Scripture for the very first time, and I understood it. <laughs> Up until that point, I didn't really understand much when it came to books. And I understood one verse of the Bible, and I remember in a flood of tears thinking to myself, this is all I ever want to do for the rest of my life is interpret the Word of God and teach it to others. Now, if you would have asked me what that meant then, there's no way I would have ever been able to tell you that what was in my heart and ultimately what was a calling for me would be to preach and to teach the Word of God. I would have never been able to articulate that. But I can tell you that that same uh, kernel of desire never, ever left me. And uh, throughout, the throughout my entire Christianity, uh, that desire, that very, very basic kernel of zeal to preach and to illustrate the, the glory of God by preaching the Word of God was something that just never, ever left me uh, and down to this very day. I was studying last night, preparing for the sermon, and I can tell you to pray for me, of course, uh, for my zeal, for my heart, for my passion, but that as I reflect on the Word of God, even to down to this very day, I tell you, I am more excited about the Word of God now than ever before. Uh, the things that God is showing me now in the Word of God, it just, it humbles me. And, and to the point where I remember reading a commentary by Gordon Fee, 
as he was just going through um, his experience of interpreting Scripture, and he said that he'd often find himself huddled under his desk and, and sobbing in tears because of the things that God was revealing to him. Well, I don't know that I get, I don't know that my story is that fantastic, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'm not that much of an emotional person, but, but I tell you that there have been tears, there have been emotions, there have been times where I'm overwhelmed by the revelation that God has set before me and just the, 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 the insights that He has given me into His Word for me personally, devotionally, and then being able to divulge that back to you in the hope that it would produce praise and that it would produce thanksgiving to God. Um, it's just a, a wonderful, glorious privilege. So let's pray together, and we will dive right into this, this chapter or this section of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, I do thank You, and I give You praise and glory. What it, it truly is, amazing grace, Lord, that, um, that You have revealed to each and every one of us who are in Christ, that You have blessed us with grace undeserved and unmerited. And yet, Lord, because of Your great Son, Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, the head of the church, because of His mediatorial work on the cross as our prophet, priest, and king who laid down His life, we stand here, we sit here today as trophies of Your grace. And one day it will be our glorious privilege to be able to cast down all of our crowns, all of our trophies at Your feet and to thank You and to praise You for all the glorious things that You have shown us, bringing us all the way to Canaan's shore so that we will stand before the throne of grace. Faith will turn into sight. And we will forever praise Your name, Lord. We, we, we can't even begin to utter the words that You deserve for such glorious grace. Bless Your name. Help us now, Lord. Accompany us, Lord. Be with us, Lord. Be among us now. Uh, visit us now by Your Spirit and give us illumination, both preacher and listener alike. Give us understanding into the mysteries of God that are contained for us in a book of Scripture. We thank You, Father. Bless Your name. Help us be glorified now. Impart grace to the hearers, to Your church. Build us up in the holy faith that we are in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is the last message in a series of messages that I have entitled um, Revived by God, or what it means to be revived by God. And I told you that this really was to be the most practical of all of the sermons because I'm focusing today on the local church. Uh, and so what we can entitle this sermon is Revived by the Church because it is so very much important. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, I came to this section of Scripture because I thought, now here is a text that is so uh, incredibly practical and, and, and so basic, and yet at the same time so foundational, so fundamental, and so essential uh, in order for us to receive all that God has ordained for us in the church. And so I hope that you will begin to see as I see that the church, what it, what it is really, because Paul leaves us here a paradigm for personal maturity and growth in the Lord as we understand that what the church is, is, is it's God's embassy on earth to grow and to mature His people. It is His, it, 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 it's like His hyperbaric chamber for the believer to come into and to grow and to uh, be revived and to be stimulated 
to live for His glory. And uh, that is what the church of God is. Let me tell you something about um, my understanding of the church as far as the Bible is concerned. You know, there is no replacing the church. I've had so many people um, over the years tell me that they do many spiritual things, uh, whether they gather in a Bible study at home. Uh, oftentimes people attend a house church. And that's fine so long as you have the government that is laid down for us in the Bible concerning the church comprised of pastors and uh, teachers, uh, de- uh, elders, deacons, and that we, 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 we conduct a church, that we have church membership, church discipline, that we give out the ordinances like the Lord's Supper, that we practice baptism, all of these things, because... The Bible knows absolutely nothing, my dear friends, about a type of Christianity devoid of the utmost commitment and the highest view of the local church. Just think about all the epistles of the Apostle Paul, Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, all of these texts, and then the pastorals like 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, When you look at all these passages, understand that the basic presupposition of everything that Paul wrote was done in the spirit of his connection to the local church, or what we could say that Paul was truly a churchman in every respect. I think of that so much as I I think of Paul in a prison cell, locked away somewhere in a dungeon for the gospel, And he's writing to the church and staying accountable to the elders and the deacons of a church. It's just incredible, right? He never loses sight of his personal participation in the church of God. He knew and he understood that the church was, in a sense, the altar upon which he would lay down his life. Look with me to Philippians chapter 2, bearing in mind this is a prison epistle, and though Paul may not have been in a dungeon, he was nevertheless under incarceration when he wrote this. And he says in Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of of your faith, that is the Philippian church's faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Watch this now because this is why I'm preaching to you today. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. And so what is given to us here in this text is something of a paradigm, I think, of what it means to be uh, involved in the church. What is a healthy biblical perspective of the church? And so I want to deduce from Paul's words in Romans chapter 1, what led to Paul basically saying, I'm ready to be poured out for the church as an offering. 
you know, this uh, passage out of Philippians chapter 2 is going back to the temple imagery of the Old Testament where basically people would do various washings and pour out water on the laver and the symbolic meaning of all those offerings and the, the sacrificial system. And Paul is basically saying that he was like a laver, like the water on the laver being poured out. He was, in a, set, in a sense, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord as he literally shed his blood on behalf of the church. And I am really filled today with a special, I hope, a special sense of sobriety. This week I met with two precious, precious believers who probably, if things go as they are saying they will go, I was probably talking to two martyrs who probably will end their course very early in their Christian life because of where God is sending them. No fear, just pure joy. And I I was so humbled as I stood in the presence of these men knowing very well that I was talking to two men who will very likely lay down their life in the service of the king. And much of what is just theory to me is reality to them. And so I just have a bit of added sobriety today is I think of Paul, I think of ministry, I think of church, I think of what God has called us to do in the kingdom of God, in the world, through our witness, through mission, all of that. I just think of it because I think, you know, Real lives are being sacrificed on the altar of the faith of the church every day. And so God just kind of, you know, it's different when you read it in a magazine, right? It's different when you're sitting across a table from it and you're looking at it straight in the face. And so therefore, I want to explore the heart of the Apostle Paul, who was probably the greatest churchman of the history of the church. And the very first thing that I want to point out based on Romans 1 is this. Paul's affection for the church. Look at how he opens up. He says, For I long to see you. I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift. So the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Romans by assuring them of his love. Uh, This wasn't just, you know, uh, this was nothing like the papacy. That this was a Pope-like figure pontificating, you know, different encyclicals and different, you know, decrees and different commands from a faraway place like the Vatican, which is like a palace surrounded by gold, sitting on a throne, letting people kiss your ring finger. No, this is the Apostle Paul explaining to the people that he was ready to get down and dirty with them in the trenches, that he longed to see them, that he wanted to come into their situation, to be among them, to serve them, to love them. And it begins by an ethic, and that ethic was his affection for the church. He loved the church. And let me tell you, 
based on the theology of the Apostle John, John puts it in very black and white ways for us so that we can understand this very simple so that we don't have to go through a whole course of theology on this. But at a Sunday school level, John says, He who does not love his brethren is in darkness until now. You can't claim to be a lover of God if you've no evidence in your life that you are a lover of his children. It is an indication. It is an indicator. And for the Apostle Paul, his passion for the church was an indication that the love of God was real and pulsating in his heart. He longed for the church. Do you long for the church? Very convicting uh, sort of example given to us today. And I hope to build you up by challenging you with those types of self-introspective propositions. Do you long for the church? Oh, I know our church is not everything. I know our church is not the end-all, you know, be-all type of thing. But again, you know, after talking to a good friend who tells me the way they're worshiping in Yemen, where he's probably going to go, is... You shut all the curtains in the house, close all the doors, put a lookout, go out and make sure no one's around, and then when you get a chance, you love on each other as passionately as you can, you sing as hard as you can, you weep as much as you can because you can't let people see your evangelical tears outside the walls of that house church. So you see that for them, loving one another is a matter of life and death. For us... We approach church much the way that we approach a salad bar. We like some of this. We like some of that. We'll take some of this. We'll get rid of some of that, right? Give me this. Give me that. We're so incredibly picky. And there's a, there's a, a legitimacy to that. I understand. And my, my thing is doctrine. I want to know, do I agree with this church doctrinally? You can tell me about the programs. You can tell me about this. You can tell me about that. But theologically, am I one with this church? Yes? Okay. Then go all in. Go all in. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 25, the Apostle Paul shows us how that for him, um, his ambition for the church was to see the church strengthened when he was among them. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, and we're going to talk a lot more about this. But look at his aim. He says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we know that passage. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know, I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed both directions, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that would be very much better. <laughs> Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, watch this, for your progress and joy in the faith. That's why Paul did what he did. And again, many renowned churchmen, churchwomen throughout the history of the church that you can look at all sorts of um, 
all sorts of uh, church history profiles that you can go to to see examples of people that love the church in this way. But again, Paul gives us just an amazing example. Look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, to see more about this affection. He says in verse 7, of chapter 1, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. He's praising them for their participation in the gospel. And he says, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me, for God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Wow! Can you say that about your view of this thing that God created called church? I long for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Tell me we don't have heart work to do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, same verses, different book, different chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, you see the same longing. He says, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly caring for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Are your brothers and sisters in the church very dear to you? Do you long for them with the affection of Christ Jesus? Sometimes I wish that more to be at stake in our Christianity so that when we see someone who is in the household of faith, oh, we would look forward to being around that person so much because we just came from a hostile environment, a hostile culture, Maybe we feel a little bit of that. Maybe you're at work and you deal with paganism and pagan people all day and filthy language and oppressive culture and vexing conversations, and you long just to be in the household. We can experience a bit of that. Paul expects the church to reciprocate this love. He, he expects the church to return this love to them. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, The Apostle Paul made it very, very clear that the only reason why a church is unloving is because the church is self-constraining itself. It's holding itself back. Paul tells them, open wide to us. That's what we need to be in the church. We need to open wide the floodgate of our heart in pure agape love for the body of Christ. Let it cost it. Let it, let it cost us whatever it will cost us. No, it's not going to be easy. No, it's not going to be pretty. No, you're not going to come out unscathed. Yes, you will probably have some very hard interpersonal interactions with people. Yep, you'll probably have some falling outs in the church. Yep, you'll probably end up in a meeting with the elders over something. Hopefully not Facebook, please. But you know what I mean. Loving people is hard. And that's why the Apostle Paul and the Word of God constantly admonishes. But see, here's the thing. Paul assumes that this unity is possible because in reality, when we love one another, when we long for one another, when we have this unity in the church, you know what we're doing? We are merely conforming to what really is. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. 
I didn't plan on being in Philippians so much, but it just kind of worked out that way. So this is what I'm saying. Paul assumes that what we can call the ontological unity of the church, the spiritual unity beneath the surface, the non-visible unity that we have in the Spirit, he assumes that unity. And it's on the basis of that unity that he calls us to a visible, practical unity. Look at uh, verse 1 here. What comes here in verse 1 of Philippians 2 is a series of first-class conditional statements. What does that mean? Well, grammars are telling us that what Paul is doing here is he's not really asking a question looking for an answer. (laughs) In other words, this is a rhetorical question. In other words, he assumes the answer to these questions is yes. That's a first-class conditional statement. And listen to what he's saying. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So in other words, because of the type of questions that these are, these uh, are assumed to be true, you could say it this way. Since we have encouragement in Christ, Since there is consolation of love, since we have fellowship in the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete. You see, what's going on there is the reality is this, brothers and sisters, we are one. That's what we are, like it or not. We are one in the Spirit. And so when we conform to that unity, we are merely conforming to what is metaphysically true about the church all along, that we are one organism. We are tied together. This is why Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. He talks about our unity. He says that they may be one just as we are one. An amazing, amazing description of what the church ought to be. To be. Now, not just Paul's affection, longing for the church, loving the church, showing that he's ready to go and, and, and be with the church, knowing that he belonged in the church, but now getting to the function of Paul in the church, Paul's function in the church, because sadly many believers today think that they have nothing to offer the church. And for those who pursue God, according to His Word, we know that that is not true. We know we all have something to contribute. And Paul's going to make that abundantly clear. But look at verse 11 again. Paul says explicitly that his aim in the church was intentional and spiritual. This is important. Number, listen to what he says here. He says, I, I long... He says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's what his longing was all about. Now, one thing, quickly. The fact that Paul is referring to a spiritual gift, he is not talking about the charismatic gifts as we might think, that what Paul is saying, I long to come to you so that maybe I might do healings or signs or miracles or tongues among you. Uh, That's not really the thrust of what the, the commentators are suggesting here. That what Paul is really aiming at here is a spiritual gift by way of of, 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 of gospel edification, in other words. In other words, what Paul is saying is that he wants to help them. Why do the Romans need help? 
They need help big time. <laughs> Read the book of Romans, especially beginning in chapter 14, because there he gets into the kind of like the, uh, the practical daily life of the church and what was going on. Big problem. Big problem. Jew and Gentile getting along together spiritually for the first time in millennia. That's a big problem. <laughs> okay? And so what he's saying, he's going to fulfill that by bringing to them this spiritual help, we could even say. But let me just capitalize on the word spiritual. Because we need to ask ourselves, what does our fellowship consist of? Is it spiritual? Do you know how many membership meetings I've had throughout the course of the years where people tell me, oh, the church I came from? We don't talk about the Bible. We don't talk about theology. We talk about work, or we talk about sports, or we talk about family, or we talk about kids, or we talk about hobbies. But we don't really sit around and talk about the Bible. <laughs> uh, who would have thought, right? People in church talking about the Bible, having spiritual fellowship. Uh, this is a novelty, folks. Uh, in most churches, the pastor says amen, and the parking lots are clear. That's it. You go. It's gone. It's like a movie ended. Let's go home. Popcorn is all finished, and you know, uh, some churches even incorporate popcorn. Anyway, I don't want to get into that, but I'm so glad he left us with the word spiritual because spiritual means spiritual, not carnal. Spiritual, not sinful. Spiritual versus being frivolous or vain or mundane or aimless or trivial. Tr being spiritual means the opposite of being shallow or hypocritically spiritual. There's a way to do that. To put on a good smile, to put on a good face, but you never let anybody in. You never bear anybody's burdens. You never confess anything that you're struggling with. That is the way to superficial Christianity. When we all walk around as if we have everything all together, we don't let anybody see us vulnerable. It's almost unacceptable today in many specially reformed type churches that you see anybody, you let anybody see you weeping in the church. You got to get it together. You got to put your act on. You got to act as if everything is cool. But in reality, you're going home to a disaster. But you told 20 people at church today, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's great with a smile. I'm not so sure that's what Jesus wants for us. I'm not so sure that's what makes for a healthy church. I think what that creates is that creates a society of fake people. And if there's one thing that the church ought to be, it's, it ought to be a, a group of real people. I'm not saying that we all go around, you know, airing out our dirty laundry in every conversation. But I am saying we ought to have the capacity, the humility the vulnerability to get real with one another and to say, yes, it's been a horrible week. I need prayer. Is that so hard for us to say? It's dangerous for us when we don't do that. Spiritually, it's not helpful. Now, Paul's aim here is not only spiritual, it is also gracious. Meaning, he says, I came to, he wanted to impart to them a spiritual gift, spiritual help. In other words, he was very intentional about this. He wanted to give them help. And so, it just boils down to us. 
Do we see it this way? Because for the Apostle Paul, the function of Paul in the church was spiritual because that was his focus. It was gracious because he sought to impart a gift. It was intentional because he came with a purpose. And again, when we stop and reflect on our own lives, does that describe the way we come to church? Do we come to church thinking spiritually, ready to impart something to somebody? When we come to church, do we have an intent or do we just kind of come to church in order to put it into cruise control? Now, I understand much of church is monologue. You come here, you hear one guy speak. And let me tell you, let me, let me make some qualifications here about that. The reason why the emergent church of the late 90s and the early 2000s has become completely irrelevant the very thing they were seeking was relevance, and they've become today irrelevant. Where are the great emergent leaders that said, we need to get rid of monologue in the church. We need to get rid of the pews. This is what they've said. Get rid of the pews. Get rid of the pulpit. Put a circle of couches together where we can talk in a safe space. No one gets threatened by anything no one is dogmatic about anything. We sit in a room together, basically navel-gazing and pooling our ideas about what we think is meaningful to us. That is a disaster. That's not even a church, right? So not, I'm not saying monologue is wrong. It is not. God, Jesus was a monologue preacher. He preached sermons. The apostles preached sermons. Just look at the book of Hebrews, an early church sermon. It is one lengthy uh, uh, monologue. Is it, it, is a, it has a homiletic uh, structure to it. So no, we never replace the preaching of the pulpit or the pulpit ministry of the church. We never, ever replace that. But we don't also then think that we have nothing to contribute the church. I can tell you because many of you have been so exemplary in this. Many of you came into the church and I didn't have to ask you to do anything I turned around, I turned my back on you for five seconds, and the next thing I know, you're doing this, and you're doing that, and you're leading this, and you're doing this. I was like, did you even get permission for that? <laughs> Better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? That's my motto. Do something! That's what the church should be all about. Everyone doing something, being intentional, saying, I'm going to encourage someone in this church today. I'm going to pray for somebody. I'm going to find the person in the church that looks like they are they're drifting. They're spaced out. They're discouraged. They're struggling. And I'm going to get into that person like the proverb says, a wise man, a man of understanding, draws another person out. Right? And to you, really God puts his finger on something, and then you're able to minister by the power of the Spirit of God into that person's life. So, very closely connected to Paul's uh, function in the church is Paul's purpose. Now, Paul's purpose was also God's purpose. Look at, uh, look at uh, the, the, the text uh, back in uh, Romans 1. He says, I long to see you that I might impart a spiritual gift, and then he explains it, that you, plural, the church, may be established. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 16. 
Romans chapter 16, the reason why I say Paul's purpose is ultimately aligned with and congruent to God's own purpose for the church, to establish the church. You see that? Romans 16, 25. He says here, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. You see that? Paul is not ever going to talk about not talking about preaching. He's always going to be supporting and propping up and, and bolstering the preaching ministry. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. And if you were in Sunday school for the last several weeks, this is going to start ringing familiar here because look at what it says. But now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. It has been made known to all nations, leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. So in the doxology that Paul ends the letter with, he reminds them that the whole purpose of God in Rome is to establish them, to get them grounded and rooted, to solidify them as a church. You know, I often tell people that for our church, because we are a young church, and I'll say it again, the success of Heritage Grace Community Church is not a foregone conclusion. We cannot just assume that our church is going to remain faithful to the gospel. We cannot just assume that our church is going to grow and thrive in a biblical direction. This is something that we have to continually protect and labor and become self-conscious about. The word establish that Paul uses back in Romans 1, and here also in 16, same word, the word establish, a vivid term, a vivid word in the Greek because it literally speaks about strengthening something from within. Now notice here, notice here, what, what Paul is saying is that there is a strength that he was after, there was an establishing that he was after that would strengthen the inner core of the church. In other words, it would be like Paul saying that he was seeking to strengthen the soul of the church. Now, what is this getting to? This is what it's getting to, that what Paul is basically saying is that he was there ultimately to strengthen the evangelical commitment of the church, to make sure that the church was going to be gospel-centered, Gospel-grounded, gospel-rooted, gospel-centered, gospel, gospel, gospel. And if you mean what you sang on Amazing Grace, then for you, the word gospel can never be used too much. Because the gospel is the only reason we sing about Amazing Grace. My only criticism of the song Amazing Grace is that it doesn't have a reference to Jesus Christ, who is the good news. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. Good song choice anyway, brothers. I'm just saying we could do better, okay? We could do a little bit better. Not with a song choice. I'm saying that. Never mind. <laughs> Who am I to critique John Newton? I mean, for crying out loud. This makes sense, especially when we think about Paul looking to edify the church. This makes sense because for Paul... He knew that at every single church, if you think about Galatians, if you think about Ephesians, if you think about uh, 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 Philippians, whatever church you think about, he is constantly reminding them of the gospel. 
constantly reminding them that his whole purpose is that they thrive in the gospel, that they do not move from being gospel-centered. They never, ever, ever become about anything else because, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, for a church, for a ministry, do you know how many ministry manuals are written for pastors to become about something other than the gospel? There's a ton. This is how you bring the youth group to the center of the church. This is how you bring programs to take over the center of the church. This is how you introduce the family as the center of the church. And many times, good and necessary things are brought in. This is how you can turn your church into a concert hall. And so it becomes a show, a performance, rather than a gospel-centered church. And so we can never, ever, ever leave off on the gospel. Now, let me get to my fourth thing. Not only Paul's affection, Paul's function, Paul's purpose. Here's another one. Paul's expectations. Did you see it? Look back at Romans 1, beginning in verse 12. He says, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith both yours and mine. What is the hardest part of church? Pastor Chris knows this. It is reciprocity. Uh, I had a family join our church who said, you know, we came from the church and it was like pulling teeth to get people to reciprocate. You know, a little back and forth here. Not the only one praying in the prayer meeting. Not the only one going to evangelism. Not the only one excited about the prayer meeting. Not the only one who is serving and doing, you know, a thousand things in the church. Not the only one cleaning up, setting up, tearing down, whatever it may be. But some sort of reciprocity. That's what Paul is calling for here. This is the ultimate aim of every church leadership. Reciprocity is everything. And uh, to show you this, I want to remind you of Paul's words, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now go here, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because what it is, is, is a, what's the reciprocity for? It's for mutual edification. It is so that the happiest person in the church is not just the pastor, so that my joy becomes your joy, and collectively we rejoice together. It's the first time that happened. Where would we be without notes? Well, I remember, oh boy, I don't remember what year this was. I think it was 2001, 2002. I was at Westminster Theological Seminary because the speaker was John Piper. And uh, some friends uh, of mine, we went there and listened to Piper's, um, his uh, graduation speech that he gave to the, the students that were graduating from seminary. And this was his text, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24 and uh, the reason why is because, you know, Piper is the theologian of joy. Piper is the theologian of glory, right? And what he always seeks to establish is that the God's glory and your joy are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are one. For God to be glorified is for man to be satisfied and vice versa. And look at this text. He says, but I call God as witness to my soul. It's a very uh, serious uh, solemn uh, thing for an apostle to say. He's basically saying, before God, I'm going to say this. This is very solemn. This is not um, 
This is not sort of just sarcastic, you know, lighthearted speech here. This is the apostle becoming extremely reverent. That to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Now, what does that mean? What he said is, what he's saying basically is, Paul didn't go to the Corinthian church any sooner because things were not in order in the Corinthian church, and he did, literally did not want to come, uh, as he says later in the book, with a whip. <laughs> in other words, he didn't really want to come with a disciplinary tone. That wasn't what he wanted. He would have, but he didn't. He even said, even to spare you, he didn't come. But notice the balancing act. Lest anyone think that Paul here is being heavy-handed or harsh, Paul says, not that we lord it, that's the apostolic authority of Paul, not that we lord it over your faith, but watch this, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. So what is the expectation of Paul? The expectation of Paul is that both pastor and member alike are working together. We are fellow workers for what? For the ultimate joy of the church, the worship of the church, the success of the church. That is what it's all about. In order to achieve this, two things are required, both a cooperative effort and an individual responsibility. Now, the cooperative effort we see, it is that both the Romans and Paul bear responsibility that only when they together, as Paul says, workers with you, only when the church, the members, the leaders are working together, cooperating together, will we succeed. But this also means, brothers and sisters, this is what I just want to leave you with. I want to challenge you uh, because the reality is, is this. It's very simple. We are a team, period. Church membership Maybe membership is not the best word. Um, you go to Costco and you get a church, or excuse me, you go to Costco and you get a membership, right? But you know the word for membership, uh, it literally comes from the Greek word koinonia. Uh, you might have heard the word koinonia. It means fellowship, but in these contexts, it means something like participation. It means, some, Paul even uses it, translates it, or uh, the NASB translates it as partnership. What if Costco handed you a partner card? That's different than a membership card. Membership means you walk in and what's the perks, right? <laughs> what do I get? You go sampling everything. You know, I know how it works. But what if Costco handed you a gold, platinum, or whatever it is, partner card? You sit there and look at that card and go, partner? Well, what do I do, right? That's the first thing that's going to come to your mind. I'm a partner. What's my, what's my place? What's my function? What do I do? You see, we all bear massive responsibility, brothers and sisters, to the local church. We all, part of the membership process is that we remind you. You remember, those of you that went through the membership process, we remind you, these are your duties as a member. This is what you're accountable to God for this. You must fulfill these things. And when you don't, be prepared for us to admonish you to encourage you, hopefully in the, in the, in the, with, with the, the affection of Christ Jesus, to come alongside of you and to encourage you back in the way. Back in the way. The Apostle Paul understands that when the church is, I guess we can say, firing on all cylinders, edification happens everywhere. 
Look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. When a church is literally working the way it ought to, edification spills over to everyone. That's what's beautiful. 2 Cor 7.5. Listen to what the Word of God says. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh, it's a reference to their body, literally, had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. That's the Corinthian church. As he reported to us, watch this now, your longing, your mourning. That mourning, what's the weeping about? The weeping is over sin. Your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. You see that there? The Apostle Paul is overflowing with joy because Though they were in a terrible circumstance in terms of their missionary journey, when they got a good report from the church, when Titus was blessed by the church, sent out by the church, he reported back from the church. And then Paul found the church is doing great. And then Paul was filled with joy. Joy, joy, joy. Only when the church is working in such a way that everybody takes their own personal responsibility. As Galatians chapter 6 says, every man will bear his own load. When everyone's doing their part in every aspect of the church, the giving, the serving, the attending, the participation, the praying, the ministering, when everybody is doing their part, the teaching to whatever capacity. You know, I've attended now every small group in our church. We have four small groups, and I've been to each one of them. You want to know who got the highest grade? <laughs> They're all wonderful. Um, this past week, we went to uh, Miriam and Juan's house, and I got to play with their pit bull, which is, I just love. I love that dog. Anyway, so, um, but on top of that, um, it's so refreshing to know we've got men in this church. Jonathan, Russell, we've got Scott, we've got Chris Matthews, now Robert, and others that are able to teach it's not just me that teaches. It's, we got teachers in the, of the Bible everywhere. It's beautiful. I tell you what, if we stay on this course, my prediction for our church is that it's not long before we go nuclear. <laughs> because that many Bible teachers, men that are just burning to preach and teach the Bible, uh, it's either going to end really bad or really good. <laughs> I hope it goes good. <laughs> and that we all unite. And that... Heritage Grace becomes a, a hub of the gospel where the gospel is just launching out people into the highways and byways and into family situations and hard situations and missionary situations. That's what happens when the gospel is the center and everyone does their part and everyone understands their calling to this work of the church. And I promise you, when this happens... You will, you will be encouraged. You will be built up. You will be revived by God in a church like that. One last thing, just to leave us with, a, with an exhortation, just along the lines of a personal responsibility. Turn with me 
This is in preparation to when I return, Lord willing, to this pulpit. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, because I couldn't finish a sermon on the church being the church, the body encouraging one another, members serving in the right capacity without going to this text. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is the gospel. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good works, good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the perfect text, and I can't wait to preach a whole sermon on it, but this is the perfect text. One of the things, you, you, you see that, why does he end it even more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near? Uh, what the eschatology of that passage suggests is this. Church is urgent. This is an urgent society that you are in. Edification is an urgent thing. The gospel is a crisis message. That's what I told a young man this past week at college, witnessing to him. He was asking me questions about Christianity. I just discerned that he was very nonchalant. Oh, what about this? What about that? Yeah, I'm thinking about it, you know, on and on. And I had to tell him, my friend, the gospel is urgent. This is a crisis that you're in. You need to know Christ. Eternity is coming. Life is short. Eternity is long. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. We are, listen, brothers and sisters, the reason why we are so different than the world is because we live in light of eternity. And the world just, they just cast eternity off. It just, they sell their soul for a bowl of soup. But we live under the constant shadow of eternity. It is coming. The day of reckoning is coming. The day that you will give an account for how you executed your membership in a church. You will give an account. That day is coming. The day is coming. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, where we will all stand before the Bema seat of Christ and give an account Oh, don't just preach judgment to unbelievers. Preach it to yourself. Because even as a believer, not that you are going to be judged for either heaven or hell, but you are going to be judged for how did you glorify God? How faithful were you? And I don't know about you, but I want to hear Christ say, enter in, good and faithful servant. I, I want him to say, enter in, good and faithful slave because the word doulos, that's what it means, slave. And that's by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, that is all that we are for God. We are his slaves. And oh, what a blessed bondage it is. So let's take our servanthood serious and glorify God. Father, I just pray sort of to send this church off into the next coming weeks as I'm not going to be here and I'll miss them dearly, but I pray for them, God, that, that they would see as much as I see the duties that are before us. These are gracious duties. These are, as John says, commandments that are not a burden because 
We are working out our salvation, not working for salvation. We are working out our salvation in fear and trembling for your glory, O God. Give us a sense of urgency, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't have the, the eyes of Christ, when we don't look with the, with the perspective that he had, that, that Paul had in the church. Forgive us when we come to church and we don't, we don't even think about blessing someone. When we come to church not ready to bear anybody's burden but our own, and just remind us, Lord, of what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so, God, by faith, by grace, through faith, for your glory, help us to pour ourselves out on the altar of the church's faith for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.